As we continue our worship, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalms, the book of Psalms, chapter 11. And as you're turning there, I want to extend formally a special welcome to the pastors who are with us. Those of you who are in our church family know that uh, this weekend we've been serving uh, 11 different pastors from around the country, uh, Illinois, California, North Carolina, Florida, and so they've been with us and we've had just kind of a, a time together to reflect on what healthy church looks like, and they're sitting in our service today, and we're so glad that you guys are here with us. Uh, but this particular message is for us all, pastor, member, visitor, So let's look at the Word of God together. Psalm chapter 11 is page 452 in the Blue Pew Bible, if you need it. And I'll read all seven verses to open us. To the choir master of David, In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, Flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow, they have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. There's a story that's been around for approximately 2,500 years that corresponds well with the overwhelming theme of this song. It's told in many different countries, dialects, has to, for it to survive as long as it has. And it goes by several different names. But you would probably recognize it from its most famous lines, regularly repeated by the main character. The sky is falling, the sky is falling. Chicken Little, Henny Penny, different names, different titles, the story's always the same. There's this panic-stricken chicken who begins to cause stir and turmoil turmoil in the entire barnyard because he misunderstands that what was actually an acorn falling on his head was the sky. And so he works everyone into a panic and eventually, in the real versions of the story, leads everyone to their demise. (laughs) But the whole point of the story resonates with us all. Panic despair, hysteria, they're not helpful. They're not helpful. And we're very prone to it. Whether you even know the story or not, you could certainly identify with the phrase because people are regularly telling us the sky is falling. It may not be in those exact terms, but we are inundated in our information age with negativity, pessimism, and just worst-case scenario type of thinking. I mean, even it is a fact of the news-making world, which is a for-profit industry, that if it bleeds, it leads. 
The way that news and media outlets make money is by viewers. The way that they get viewers is by presenting to you the most dramatic, the most catastrophic. In fact, sociologists have been doing research for years to follow the negative effects of news on individuals' health, and it is a proven fact that those who watch the news more are more likely to be depressed. They are more likely to feel unsafe in their communities. They're more likely to perceive themselves as a victim. They're more likely to think that crime is on the rise. It has an effect. But it's not just the media. Some of us maybe rightfully shelter ourselves from that. We're not inundated in it. But even if we're not inundated in it, we're surrounded by people who are. And it almost seems to be the mission of some people in life, if they think that you're doing okay, they're going to upset that. They want to make sure that you're not too happy or too confident because they certainly feel pretty miserable themselves. I've seen a micro-expression of this in my own home in recent days. It's been frankly annoying. Let's see, I'm looking around to make sure none of my children are in here. Somebody's going to hear this, but guys, I just have to tell the crowd about this. They are into this thing right now, my kids, I have five, of scaring one another. So, like, we're in the house, and they're playing. I mean, it's playful. But it is dramatic and horrible as a parent to hear children, like, blood-curdling screams, all because somebody, like, made up that there was a cockroach in the bedroom or something. And they keep doing it. And you know what? It reminds me of many adults. They see somebody who seems to be perfectly calm and normal, and then they'll begin to lead with, like, have you heard... Did you know that? Wasn't it just horrible that? You know, those lines, that, that like, those, those lead our conversations. We don't share happy things. We share the destructive things because we just don't want some people to be too happy. The word killjoy is in the dictionary for a reason. And we seem to be surrounded by such negativity. And the environment that we live in was not unfamiliar to the original readers of the Scriptures as well. The text makes that crystal clear. The psalmist is already dealing with such pervasive pessimism even in his own day. Just look at the first three verses to get an idea of what he's trying to respond to. He's saying to the readers, to the congregation that will sing this, In the Lord I take refuge. I find shelter in Yahweh God. And now he's going to... rebuke implicitly the people who are advising him. He says, how can you all, you guys, plural, say to my soul, why do you keep telling me, and this is the news that he's getting, flee like a bird to your mountain. The idea was like a bird during hunting season. You know, like that's when they are actually, when something's shooting at them, when they feel threatened, that's when they're going to find shelter. And he's saying, hey, you're being shot at. You're like a bird. Get out of the open. You need to retreat. Head for the hills. Get in the bushes. Next line. For behold, here's the next piece of advice or news that he gets. The wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string. They shoot the dark, in the dark, at the upright in heart. So here's the next negative saying of the naysayers. They actually say, behold, look, I want you to see. They're they're saying this to the psalmist. Check out, look with your own eyes at the wicked. They're all out there, 
And they bend the bow. The idea of bending the bow was taking it and getting it ready to shoot. As many of you know, you don't keep a bow strung all the time or it'll lose its strength. So they say, look, they're preparing their weapon. They've placed the arrow on the string. It's like they've put the sniper rifle together. The bullet is in the chamber. They are targeting us. And what's interesting is that the naysayers say that they're in the dark. You can't see them, but somehow they can see them. They're imagining enemies that may or may not be there, and they want the psalmist to be scared about this potential threat on his life. He says, the wicked are about to get you. And then the final thing is in verse 3. Absolute societal obliteration. They say, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? They're trying to point to the fact that what we think is most essential for society to continue is being eroded like from the inside. It's like termites have already infested the entire foundation, and we have no options. This thing will go down. You hear people say that kind of stuff. The educational system is just over. Man, our, our, our leadership in this country is such a mess. Or that theological liberalism has invaded all of our seminaries. I mean, people talk in these dramatic terms as if everything's over and that the righteous have no recourse. Everything's going down. And you know what the psalmist is trying to say through this entire song? This is illogical. How can you say to my soul, these things are true? If I am taking refuge in the Lord, how can this be true? This, friends, is a psalm of confidence. It is a psalm of calm amid despair. In a world in which we're surrounded by prevailing despair, the psalmist is going to present for us four cures for overwhelming negativity. They're simple cures to help deal with the prevailing despair that regularly surrounds us. I'll give them to you ahead of time. And then we'll look at them each in depth. And I would encourage you as you're listening to pick one to hang on to for the week. Here are all four, but pick one to hang on to for the week. I'll remind you of that at the end. What are the cures that he presents in this text for dealing with despair? Well, there's the exalted position of the Lord, the perfect perception of the Lord, the coming vindication of the Lord, and the righteous affection of the Lord. The Lord's exalted position, perfect perception, coming vindication, and righteous affection. These are cures. He intends for these truths to transmit a measure of peace for those who are surrounded by the pessimistic doomsdayers. The first cure is the Lord's exalted position. He says, if we're going to be able to truly find rest and refuge in Yahweh, despite what everybody around us is saying, we need to recognize that the Lord is in an exalted position. He is sitting on His throne. Look at verse 4. Notice how he's, He's heard what the naysayers have to say, and then here's His response The Lord, or Yahweh, is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Now, 
for us who are like first reading verse 4, you're not thinking like, oh yes, the Lord is in his temple. Because we have an underappreciation for the word temple, generally speaking. When we think of a temple, we think of a religious building that houses or confines a deity of some kind. Or maybe is a beautiful place, a, a pious place, but not a very powerful place. Uh, we view temples almost like people view the, the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. No one thinks of all the buildings that are in Washington, D.C. that there's any power at the National Cathedral. But it's a pretty place. If you've ever seen it, the stained glass, the statues, it's a place for peace, it's a place for tranquility. And so that's our view of a temple. And when we see the psalmist say, the Lord is in his temple. It's not very reassuring. You're just thinking like, oh, great. Well, the Lord is in that little religious box. But that is not what the word temple meant to the original reader. The word temple can be translated temple or palace. It was the place of royal authority. As Americans, we're used to the separation of powers. There is the church and it's its own thing. There's the state, and even the state is split up into a separation of powers. You've got an executive branch, a legislative branch, a judicial branch. There's not too much power in any one place. But in this time period, power was located in one central location. It was located wherever the king lived. And what the psalmist is reminding his readers is that God is actively in the place of power and influence. He is in his temple. And just as Hebrew poetry works, they don't rhyme the sound of things. They rhyme the equality of the ideas. You notice the second line? The Lord is in or sitting on his throne. He is in his holy temple. He is sitting on his throne. Temple and throne are supposed to be parallel to one another. Temple isn't just the religious side of things, and throne is the power side of things. He's saying he is in the place of power. He is sitting on the throne. You could say it this way, and it would resonate with you as a 21st century listener. The captain is at the helm. The pilot is in the cockpit. The king is on the throne. When despair is prevailing in the world around us, we need to be reminded and hold on to the fact that our God is in the actual place of influence. He is in the place that matters. And so we should be reassured. You know, this is a a, a truth that just gets repeated over and over again. We just sang it a few minutes ago, over and over again. We sang, our God reigns, He reigns, He reigns. You know that's the word sovereignty? When we say God is sovereign, these two Latin words, reign and sove, to, to rule over all. When we say God is sovereign, we're saying that He rules over all. And I love the way that The old author, A.W. Pink, translates this idea for us. It's so good. He says, to say that God is sovereign is to declare that He is the Almighty, the possessor of all power in heaven and earth, so that none can defeat His counsels, thwart His purposes, or resist His will. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that He is the governor among the nations, setting up kingdoms, overthrowing empires, and determining the course of dynasties as pleaseth Him best. 
to say that God is sovereign is to declare that He is the only potentate, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Such is the God of the Bible. And then he ends with this. The sovereignty of the God of Scripture is absolute, irresistible, and infinite. When we say that God is sovereign, we affirm His right to govern the universe which He has made for His own glory just as He pleases. God is on His throne. He is sitting in the exalted position of the universe. Can I ask you a practical question that may help put this in perspective for you? What is the one area to which you look regularly for peace and assurance? What is the one area to which you look regularly for peace and assurance? Let me give it to you this way, as as a test. It's a fill-in-the-blank. Everything is okay as long as fill-in-the-blank. How do you normally answer that question? Everything's okay as long as fill-in-the-blank. For many of us, especially those of us who are more politically conservative, everything is okay as long as... There is a majority of our position represented in Congress, whether there is a majority of conservative Supreme Court justices, whether there is a presidential candidate who aligns with the values that we ourselves share. We look to political realities to establish at least some measure of peace. And when that's off, it's a horrible four years for us. And yet what the text says is even when the despair is glaring, even when it could be possible that we would be sniped off at any moment, we should remember that God is on His throne. That is the position to look to and say everything is okay as long as God is in His palace and He is on His throne. We don't just do this in political ways. We do it in practical ways. And I won't beat this horse too much, but you all know what it's like to think everything is okay, to check the balance in your checking account, or to check the health of your children, or to check the relational feel that you have with someone that you love. We all look to other things, whether it's politics or people. Yet the text is pointing us to one thing, and that is God himself sitting on the throne of the universe. What do you say to the naysayer? Simple. I hear you, but God's on his throne. God's on his throne. He is in an exalted position. There's a second cure that the text presents us, and that is not just the exalted position of the Lord, but it's also the perfect perception of the Lord. As the, as the lines continue to unfold in verse 4, you notice that he moves on from God's sovereignty to his omniscience. You see it there in the second half of the verse. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. Now, again, we've got more poetic parallelism, and we like the first one. It makes a lot of sense to us. His eyes see. What is he talking about? God sees everything. I don't, newsflash, just in case you didn't know it, God sees everything. We all know that. And yet what the psalmist says here is that this should be a reassuring thing for you. The the theological term is omniscience. 
Not just he rules over all, but right, he knows all. He knows all. And so this is a comforting reality for the psalmist. He knows who's standing in the dark. He knows the condition of the the unalterable foundations of society that need to be together. He knows about the prevailing despair in the air. He knows our hearts. He knows what we fear. He knows what we love. He knows how we could be comforted. God knows all of that. He sees all. It's the second line in the poem that gets kind of weird for us because we're thinking... His eyelids see? Like it, he sees all and his eyelids try, his eyelids test. How do God's eyelids help me? <laughs> well, A, well, that's not A, that's one. One, <laughs> God doesn't have a body. Let's just be clear about that. God is a spirit. And the, the psalmist will often use anthropomorphism assign human characteristics to God to help us better understand him. So, not only does God not have eyelids, technically speaking, nor does he have eyes, but eyes communicates vision, poetically. Eyelids communicate something too. What does it communicate? Scrutiny. Careful examination. Anybody ever look at a Where's Waldo book? You open one of those babies, and you can see a bunch of red and white over the entire page, and you can see the entire page. But when you begin to scrutinize, when you begin to look for Waldo, you begin to squint. You ever seen a contract, and there's the the stuff that's really big and really obvious, and you can see all of that, but then there's that like paragraph that's at the very bottom, and they put it in like four-point font. We call it the fine print. What do you do when you get to the fine print? You don't keep it back. You squint it forward. Because you're scrutinizing. You're looking carefully at something. something. What, the, what the psalmist is giving us here is not just parallelism. That's somehow, sometimes how Hebrew poetry works. But now he's advancing a thought. He's saying he not only sees everything, he he not only has eyes on the situation, if you will, but he scrutinizes everything. He knows every little detail, not just about the situation, but about everyone involved. It says that his eyes scrutinize or test that the children of men, that Literally, in Hebrew, it is the sons of Adam. Anyone who descended from Adam, man, woman, humanity, anyone represented in this room today or outside this room. That kind of covers it all, right? You're either inside or outside. I don't think there's anybody in between somewhere. Inside or outside this room, God scrutinizes you. He knows what's going on in your heart and your life. And for the psalmist, this is a relieving thing. This is a relieving thing, but guess what, friends? As I say that, for some of you, it sounds a little hollow because you've never viewed the omniscience of God as something to be comforted by, and that is pastor's fault. Not this pastor, but just a bunch of other pastors. Too regularly have men in my position presented the omniscience of God as something to dread and not something to delight in. It started when I was a kid little song. We sang it every Sunday. You know it? Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. And then it goes through all your body parts. 
And the, the tagline at the end of each of the songs is, for the Father up above is looking down on love. The idea is that even though he's looking down on love, you better be careful because God's watching. You know that this mindset actually matured and would rock the world of literature. Orwell, 1984. The idea of this big brother. This, this one who, this invisible one who is always watching. The, the police state, the military state, like now accountability, like somebody somewhere looking at us became something negative. And friends, we should rightfully be concerned about privacy and things of that matter. But listen, we should not be concerned about an almighty, all-loving God seeing. <laughs> if I tell you, I came up to you right after the service and said, hey, I saw you yesterday. Now, that could either like strike fear and panic into you or encourage you depending on what you were doing. If you distinctly remember helping a little old lady across the street yesterday, you're thinking like, yes, the pastor saw me doing something good. If you were like ripping your kids a new one in the backseat of the car, you would be embarrassed. That would be a horrible thing. You saw me. You know what the psalmist is assuming here? He's assuming one thing about God, that, that God is good and loving and kind. And he's assuming something else about his people, that they are righteous and generally do what is right. If we've been made righteous by Christ, listen to this, if we've been made righteous by Christ, we can be assured of this reality. And this is gospel truth, friends, that God the Father looks at you through the shed blood of his Son, and he declares you as not guilty before him. The sin that you've committed has already been paid for, it's already been satisfied, and the good works that you do now will abound for His praise and glory. It's all win. It's all win for those who are righteous, for those who have been made righteous by Christ. And so the psalmist says like, okay, I know it's bad out there, I know that, I hear what you're saying, I get it, but pause for a moment, I just want you to reflect on something, God sees me. He has perfect perception. He knows my heart. And even those times that I failed, it's already been paid for. It, it is good to be righteous. It is good to find refuge in Yahweh. This is a cure for prevailing despair. The Lord's exalted position, His perfect perception. And then thirdly, His coming vindication. The psalmist actually finds a cure for despair in the coming vindication of God Almighty. It seems like vindication and comfort would never be in the same sentence. Vindicate. To, to make something right by pouring out wrath. I mean, that, that, is, that is a very disturbing concept. And in fact, this passage, many would delete from their Bibles if they could. Look at the verse. Hebrews 11. You, you read verse 4, and you're like, all right, it's all good. And you get to verse 5, and you see this. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Look at verse 5 one more time. The Lord tests the righteous, 
but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Here we have a God who has perfect perception, but friends, you need to be aware of something. The psalmist is telling us that Almighty God, the one who is in control, not only sees the righteous, examines the righteous, finds them to be approved in his sight. The word test or examine in your Bible is the same one that's used of allaying metals, testing metals to see that they're good. The implication is, poetically, in the line, is that God sees or examines the righteous and approves of them, because then you notice the negative. He sees the unrighteous and he hates them, the the one who works violence, the, the, the doer of violence. This is a Frankly, it's a disturbing passage, but we need to get to something because the psalmist is leading us to actually find comfort from the coming vindication of God. How in the world, what, what kind of weirdo would actually be able to, to find pleasure in and comfort in the, the wicked being destroyed? Um, I would answer that by simply saying it would be the one who is actually being destroyed by the wicked. The only person who can find joy in the wicked being destroyed is the person who is actually being destroyed by the wicked. Maybe I could give it to you this way. The text is making it clear here that the the unrighteous aren't just like morally neutral, but that they're actually evil. I didn't plan on saying this, but I think I need to. Friends, despite what our culture tells us, we need to understand that if we believe the Word of God, that evil actually exists. It is not a social construct. You want an example of how our world is training us to think of evil as a social construct? Just recently, last month, two months ago, a new movie comes out. Another comic book movie. I mean, how many of them can we have? For some of you, not never enough. I get it. But another series, another spinoff of the, at least the Batman story advances with uh, a movie entitled Joker. Um, haven't seen it. Don't plan to. But I've talked to people who have, uh, and I've read reviews. Uh, the movie, Joker, is interesting because... It's not the, uh, the Joker that you knew from the 60s in the Adam West Batman. You know, here is like the good guy and the bad guy. Uh, what the director has tried to do in the movie Joker is give us a sympathetic understanding of how someone could become a twisted, maniacal serial killer. And so the whole story progresses of giving you the background of this arch-villain so that you could at least better understand why he will eventually try to kill as many people as he possibly can. And so, when people go on a killing spree, they're not called evil, they're called disturbed. We look to their background, and we see the horrible things that happened to them, and we hear about their abuse, and, and we just, if you just understood, like, what, what they had to go through, maybe you just kind of better understand why they responded the way they did. This is relatively new, French. We used to be able to say, good is good, and bad is bad, and now we're like, good is good, and then bad is, well, we're not really sure it's something, I mean, it probably wasn't their fault, it was more nurture, not nature. 
And so when we see passages about God pouring out destruction upon the wicked, we're like, they couldn't help it. But friends, there really is evil in this world, and God hates it more than fire hates water. He is opposed to wickedness. He is opposed to evil. It actually exists, and it expresses itself. Interestingly, the psalmist says it expresses itself in violence. You'll like the Hebrew word for violence because you hear it in the news all the time. Hamas. Hamas. Sound familiar? The terrorist organization takes its name from this very word, and you know what they're about. Violent destruction. But you know, the word violence isn't limited to acts of blatant terrorism. It includes any radical loyalty to self at the destruction of others. So being willing to step over others, to put others down, to destroy others for one's personal benefit or gain. Now, you're getting a broader definition now of what God hates so much. God hates people who love themselves to the point that they would be willing to harm others. We don't use the moral terms very much, but sometimes we call it a shrewd business deal. But what had actually happened in the shrewd business deal was re-rip somebody else off so that we could put ourselves in a better position. Or just take the classic abortion to debate. We, we would call it a, a woman's right to choose, but in actuality, it's murder of an unborn child. Hamas. I am so important that other people can suffer so that my well-being will be ultimately protected. You know what the text says? God hates that. He hates it. He hates it with a vengeance. To love, to, to love some things is to hate others. There's some mutual exclusivity that exists out there. I think it'd be, let me follow the logic for a moment. I'm going to, sorry, I know there's children here. Parents, you're going to have to explain this to them later. I, I hate it, but we, this is important. God hates Follow the logic. God hates pedophilia, rape, and murder. Would you agree with that? Okay. Now, the danger is us viewing pedophilia, rape, and murder as if it just exists out there somewhere. You can't have pedophilia without a pedophile. And you can't have rape without a rapist. And you can't have murder without a murderer. I know our Sunday school teachers meant us well when they said, God loves everybody. God loves the sinner but hates the sin. You ever heard that? But friends, I'm telling you, what your Bible says is that God hates the wicked. You say, Justin, I don't, I don't, I don't feel comfortable with this because I know what the Bible says. It says that God loved the world. God loved the world. Is it not possible for God to love the world in one way? And to still hate certain aspects of the world in another? I could give you an example of this even from my own family. And it's a small one. It's not perfect, but it can get the picture across. 
uh, my wife, and I'm not even joking about this, trying to be funny. All of you know that my wife loves God's creation, generally. She loves our children, and she loves animals, particularly dogs. You know that I don't love dogs. I don't hate them. I just don't prefer them. So I have to use my wife for this example. My wife loves our children. She loves dogs. Um, that's a general love. There is one way in which she loves dogs, and there's another way in which she loves her children, but you can honestly be said that she loves both. But she loves them in different ways. If Tanya were ever placed in the horrific position of the Coates family at the end of the movie Old Yeller, now you know you cried at that movie, just go ahead. If she were ever put in the position of the Coates family at the end of the movie, Old Yellow, the rifle's coming out, the dog's going down. Does she love God's creation? Does she love dogs? Does she love children? Yes, but she loves children, our children in particular, in a different way than she loves dogs. Especially ones that have been infected with a dangerous disease that causes the destruction and demise of others around it. There is a sense in which God loves everyone, but there is also a sense in which God hates those who have been infected by sin, and He will pour out wrath upon it and put it to an end. The psalmist He says it, he prays it in the text, or you could translate it just as like a passage like in and of itself, not a prayer, but just a statement. Look at at verse 6. This is God's Word now. I'm not making this up. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be a portion of their cup. Flip back just a couple of chapters to Psalm chapter 5. Notice, Verses uh, 4 through 6 of chapter 5. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. And I, one more step on this, because I know what some could say. Oh, that, you know, that's that Old Testament God. This is the God of the Old Testament. He's the one that hates sinners. But the God of the Old, uh, New Testament, he's just all love and rainbows and sunshine. Well, look at Revelation chapter 20 if you want a clearer picture of the God of the New Testament. And it will be crystal clear that his views on sin and sinners have not changed. This is at the very end. It's the end of the book. It's the way things go down. And you look in chapter 20, and you see verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. He's a righteous judge. And I I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open. And then another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they have done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. 
This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. And he clarifies who's thrown in the lake of fire in chapter 21, verse 8. Just look on down. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Do you notice the appeal to fire and sulfur? It's, it's Psalm 5. It's Psalm 11. Like, this is how God has always felt about it. He will see evil fully and finally eliminated. He will pour out His wrath not only on sin abstractly, but on sinners particularly. And the psalmist is comforted by this. To go back to the gruesome analogy, and we'll move on. To love children is to hate pedophiles. To love life is to hate murderers. It should be eliminated, purged. Rightfully, we want to see things that would destroy that which we love eliminated. And God pours out His wrath and will pour out His wrath on all those who rebel against Him. But listen to this. For some, Christ has absorbed that wrath. For some, Christ has absorbed that wrath. God is holy and hates sin, and yet He sent His Son to take the full brunt of sin for all who would believe in Him, all who would trust in Him, all who would be made righteous by Him. The only way you'll ever avoid the fiery judgment of God for all eternity is to turn and to trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone. And so the psalmist is comforted by the fact that he has is righteous with God on behalf of something that has been provided for him. And those enemies can also be changed into the righteous if they too would just trust in this God. But those who persist in their rebellion, those who are hell-bent on the destruction of the righteous and all God's good designs for this world will one day be put to an end. And the psalmist legitimately finds comfort in that. This isn't going on forever, folks. You may be too shielded from the news if you think what I'm saying right now is radical. Evil exists. It is out there. There are people who want to see what you believe in and what you trust in perish from the face of the earth, and they wouldn't mind if you went with it. And God says, they will not be able to rebel forever. I will put an end to this. And so the psalmist finds a cure in the coming vindication of God. And to provide a fitting balance... There's a final cure, and that is the righteous affection of God. The last verse presents the righteous affection of God. Notice it. It's, It's beautiful in the contrast. He says, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. 
The upright shall behold his face. You notice the word righteous or some form of it is mentioned three times in that verse. It starts off by saying that righteous is what God is. He is perfect. He does that which is right. Uh, He is the standard, by the way. He doesn't line up to some external standard of righteous or what you think is righteous. He is the standard. And so he determines what is right. The Lord is righteous. He does that which is right. And naturally, he loves righteousness. He loves righteous deeds. The assumption here is that those who are righteous are trying to do the right thing. You know what it's like to try to do the right thing and not be appreciated for it? (laughs) Or feel like nobody saw it? Or or just to feel like it was absolutely neglected? He's saying here that, no, God sees those things and He knows. He knows you're doing right things and He loves it. He loves His righteous people doing righteous things and He ends it with this, the upright, or the righteous, literally, shall behold His face. What does it mean to behold his face? It literally means to be in his relational presence. We use the word face the same way they use the word face. If, if I'm traveling on a trip and I call back home, what do we ask to do, kids and parent alike? Let's do FaceTime. It's better than just the normal phone conversation. I get to see my kids. My kids get to see me. I want them in my presence. Some random telemarketer emailed here the other day, and he asked Jeff if he could FaceTime with me and said that we had had a meeting of some kind. I think, I don't know how this went down. I'm still not clear. But until I figure out who this guy is, he's not getting FaceTime because I don't know him. Or maybe you've said it this way, you're really angry at somebody, and you don't just say, leave. Hey, would you please remove yourself from my presence? What do you say? Get out of my face. (laughs) Here he's saying, the righteous will find comfort knowing that a righteous God who loves righteousness wants people in his face, in his presence. Do you see, like, the contrast? It's like black velvet and shiny diamonds. You've got the black velvet of God's wrath being poured out on the wicked, and you've got the exact opposite in the last verse where he's saying, the righteous aren't going to be punished, but they're going to be welcomed into his presence. And friends, if you are trusting in Christ, God the Father enjoys your presence. You've been justified, you've been declared righteous, and that's made it possible for you to enter into His presence, and you're being sanctified, which means that you are increasingly, consistently, regularly becoming more and more righteous in a practical sense, preparing you for His presence one day, and one day you will be glorified, fully made righteous, just like Jesus, and will fully enjoy His presence. You have enjoyed His presence upon salvation, you are enjoying His presence in sanctification, and you will fully and finally one day enjoy His presence in glorification forevermore. This is our destiny. And he's encouraged by that. This is, he is for you. He, he doesn't just tolerate the righteous. He doesn't just see them. He longs for them. He wants to be with them. And that's good news, especially in light of all the junk that's being said around us. And so the truth is, friends, we're going to leave this place today 
and you're going to turn on your radio, you're going to check your email, or you're going to step into the office tomorrow morning, and you're going to hear it once more. The sky is falling. You'll hear it all week long. (laughs) And if you just follow the logic of the tale that's been told for 2,500 years, you just know that's dangerous. All the barnyard animals end up with a fox and they all die. But our psalm provides us with something better. It doesn't just tell us what to reject, the despair. It tells us what to receive and to embrace. And that is the dominance of our God. We receive and hold on to this week the Lord's exalted position His perfect perception, His coming vindication, His righteous affection. The text tells us exactly what will cure the prevailing despair around us. But let me end with just a practical pointer on how to use these four truths. You've got the cures. You know them. How do you use them? Three action verbs. The first one is to repent if you haven't done so already. There is a a, a crystal clear difference between the righteous and the wicked in this verse. Friends, if you walked in here today, please hear me. If you walked in here today thinking there were three categories of people, the good, the bad, and the somewhere in between, I just want you to know as plainly as I can tell you that is not in the Bible. There are only two categories of people, and they are the righteous and the wicked. And the only difference between the righteous and the wicked is that the righteous have repented from their wickedness and relied exclusively upon Jesus Christ alone. Not the Pope, not their own works, not what their parents told them was true when they were a kid. They have personally repented, turned from their sin, and trusted in Jesus Christ alone. What I am telling you today is, is not a workable cure for you if you have not yet repented of your sin. And if you don't know what that means, if this is unclear to you, please talk to someone around you before you leave or find me before you go. Because that is the first thing that you must do to use these cures. You must repent. Most of you would say, check, I've done that. I, I have repented. You know what the next thing that you could do to really use this this week? That is to reassure yourself with one of these facets of God's character this week. Pick one. If I tell you to go out today and try to remember all four, nobody's going to remember anything. But I think you can remember one. Whatever resonated the most strongly with you today, whether it be God's exalted position, His his perfect perception, His coming vindication or His righteous affection. You just need to take that, put it on a sticky note. Yes, they still make those. Stick it on a mirror and you just make it a point to pray about that this week. You need to be using truth. And just regularly, just reflect on that. Recall it in the dismay that you currently feel. So repent. Reassure yourself with this truth and then This may be the most practical, especially for those of you who have already repented. You need to realign your idea intake. (laughs) You need to realign your idea intake. 
What I mean by that is so many of us have opened ourselves up to, by our own choice, we've opened ourselves up to the prevailing despair and negativity and despondency around us. It, it is in our email inboxes, it is in our podcasts, it is in our TV watching habits, it is in the books we read, and it is in the people we hang around. Friends, God intends for you to live confidently in His presence. And you know the old saying, you will be the same person today you are five years from now, except for the people you meet in the books you read. You better watch out for what you're reading and who you're hanging around. So there would be some things, some of you practically need to cut off, some things you need to unsubscribe from, and some channels you should just frankly stop watching. Because it's just feeding this negative mindset. And you need to replace it with something better. You know what? Since a lot of this that we're talking about today has to do with just being an American and being concerned about the political situation, can I give you some advice on that? Um, Don't watch the news every night. I'm not saying it's sin to, but unless you just really want a heart attack, you know, don't watch the news every night. But if you want the news, because I know you don't want to be uninformed, and I very rarely do this, and Somebody can rebuke me for it later, but I would recommend that you would actually subscribe to Al Mohler's podcast, The Briefing. He's the president of Southern Seminary. He takes mainstream news, and he digests it through a Christian worldview, and then he spits it back out at people just like you and me, and it's a constant reminder of God's sovereignty over current events. I very rarely recommend anything that concrete, but I am going to do that for you. I know you think Fox News may be your positive spin, but friends, they have the same motto. If it bleeds, it leads. At least Moeller has the Christian worldview to process this for you and help you with it. But can I give you something even better than the briefing? Your Bible. I know, I know you read your Bible, but listen, when was the last time you read the Bible? And it changed the way that you felt about something or changed the way that you thought about something. Friends, I'm not talking about this perfunctory Bible reading, you did your four chapters a day mess. I've had too many conversations this week where people have assured themselves of horrible things on the basis of reading their Bible every day. Please be gone with that. I don't care about you reading your Bible every day. What, What we should care about is being impacted by our Bible every day. Like, spending enough time, it doesn't have to be long, but spending enough time with it to actually digest what's there and to feel differently about something, to think differently about something, or to act differently about something. How about this? Don't even, tell, don't even check it off your little list if one of those three things didn't happen by the time you were done. Just say, I tried to read my Bible today. But friends, we need to be influenced by the Word. This is how the psalmist, in time of deep despair, was able to rehearse these glorious truths about who God is because he knew the law of God. And so, how do we use these cures? We repent, we reassure, and we realign. Let's pray. Father, give us hope amid despair, for it is everywhere around us. And what you've called us for in this text isn't just 
like the power of positive thinking. Lord, this is the power of theological thinking, the power of, of dwelling in truth, knowing who you are through your word. And I pray that, Lord, the text today, Lord, would penetrate the hearts of all who are here so that they could use this truth and, and find hope in it. And for those who don't have that hope, for those who don't know whether or not they're, they're righteous before you, they don't know if they've really turned from their sin and trusted in Christ, they don't know their spiritual position before you, Lord, make that clear today. Lord, save them. Lord, convert them. And for those who have been converted already, Lord, illumine your word. Lord, turn the light on. I pray that, Lord, the truths of this text would resonate in their heart this week. And they that not only would be able to maintain a positive outlook in your sovereign control in the week to come, but through their own Bible reading and study of the Scriptures, that they would be able to take this in years to come, to constantly turn to you despite the negative news around them. This is a work that only you can do, and so we place it in your capable hands. In Jesus' name, amen.